you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. John 18 is our text this morning. We'll begin in verse 28. The title of the sermon is The Trial of Jesus. Not very original, but that's, that's what we're walking through in this text. As I was contemplating this text, I was thinking this was quite possibly the longest day in history for one man would have been to walk through what Jesus walked what Jesus walked through from the time that he was arrested with his disciples in the garden uh, or arrested while he was with his disciples rather uh, and then to walk through the trial that he walked through and then to think all of this happened up until 6 a.m. in the morning that we'll see in the text in a few moments uh, and then Jesus would proceed to um, walk the way of sorrow uh, to the cross to Calvary. And so if you found your place in John chapter 18, would you let it be known by saying amen? Let us pray together before we read. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to each of us. Lord, as we look at John's narrative that he wrote so long ago, I ask that you would speak to each of our hearts in the way that you desire to to commune with us and to lead us. And I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word. And Lord, as we come to this time, I, I pray personally that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 28 and going through chapter 19, verse 16, our text looks at the trial of Jesus, at least the civil portion of it, where he is standing before Pilate. And so I I want to read through. The narrative moves pretty fast. So I want to invite you to follow along in in your copy of God's Word as I read. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this I've been born, and for this I've come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. 
Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Pilate then took Jesus, verse 1 of chapter 19, and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And to give him slaps on the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you to and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief of priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. As Drew mentioned a moment ago, the theme of the service today and the text really focuses on the kingship of Jesus. That he's a king, but he's a king unlike any other king. In fact, this passage shows us that Jesus is God's heavenly king who's come to establish his kingdom by truth. And he's done this through his death as the innocent Passover sacrifice. And so this morning, I want us to recognize or see that our reactions to King Jesus expose our ultimate motivation and determine our ultimate destiny. And so in chapter 18, verses 1 through 27, we were given a kind of a theological framework for interpreting the remaining narrative of Jesus' crucifixion and, and of his trial. Specifically, in verse 11 and verse 14, we saw first that Jesus was, he's intent on drinking the cup that the Father has for him. He's, he's intent on drinking the cup of the Father's wrath. 
And then verse 14, he's intent on doing this to become the substitute for man's sin. He would be the substitute to pay for the sin of mankind. In other words, Jesus would suffer the death that we deserve and thereby satisfy God's wrath against sin. And so scene one and scene four, as this takes moves through four scenes, scene one and scene four bracket our narrative this morning. And they bracket the narrative with the theme of Passover and draws our attention that Christ the King is also the Passover Lamb. And we'll see in a moment the significance of Passover. But first, I want you to see that Jesus is the heavenly Passover Jesus is the heavenly Passover, verses 28 through 32. So in verses 28 through 32, we're introduced to a new character in the narrative. And that character is Pilate. In fact, the officials and Caiaphas most likely have led Jesus to Pilate for a prearranged hearing that's already been set up. We know that it was probably a prearranged hearing because it was Pilate who himself had sent out the group of armed soldiers to go with the officials of the temple and Caiaphas, the chief priest, to arrest Jesus when he was in the garden. And so Caiaphas has has probably arranged for a pretty elaborate plan to put Jesus to death. We're clued into this back in John chapter 11, verses 47 through 53 where it closes in that section by saying, from that day on, they plan to kill him. Speaking of Caiaphas and the high priest, the officials, the council that had gathered together. And so in verse 29, when they come to Pilate, Pilate asks them, he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? And so in verse 30, they give a general answer saying, well, we wouldn't bring him to you if if he wasn't an evildoer. But in verse 31, ultimately, their motive, those religious leaders, the high priest, their motive is revealed. They say, we aren't permitted to put anyone to death, cluing us in to understand what they're really getting at. They really want to put Jesus to death. They don't want this trial to really be a fair trial. They're ready to condemn Jesus. So in verse 32, John gives us the clue that says to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. You know, and this, this calls us to see that not only was Jesus controlling the events surrounding his arrest, if you recall from last week, but we also see now that God was in control even of the political realities of the day. Hear that. He was in control then, and let me tell you, he's in control still now. Here's how we know that he was in control of the political realities, even of the day. The fact that at this point in history, Romans had to sanction capital punishment shows us that God is in control of all of this. The Jews weren't able to sanction capital punishment. And if they were able to, they would have stoned Jesus Like Acts chapter 7, where we see Stephen getting stoned by the mob, instead of putting him to death on the cross. But in order to fulfill Scripture, where Deuteronomy 21-23 says, the one who hangs on the tree is cursed of God. We see in John 12-32, where Jesus has already said, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. 
You see, but he was saying this to indicate by the type of death he would die, meaning he was going to the cross. And so if the Jews alone sentenced Jesus, he's going to die by stoning. But if the Romans sentenced Jesus, then he dies by crucifixion on a cross. And in this first scene, John points out really one ironic detail that we can't miss. And that detail is seen in verse 28. The Jews didn't enter into the praetorium so they wouldn't be defiled. If they would have been defiled, they would have been prohibited from eating and participating in the Passover meal. And so the Passover meal here is that it's the, the, un, the feast of unleavened bread as well that continues for the week. And so these, these religious leaders didn't want to be defiled. The significance of the Passover, however, can't be overlooked. And the reason John brings it in to the text here is to show us the theme that not only is Christ the king, he is the innocent Passover lamb. The annual festival of Passover was instituted in order to celebrate what God had done in bringing a miraculous rescue and deliverance to his people. He had delivered them out of the bondage of Egypt. One key element of the festival was the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Because it was the Passover lamb that would be sacrificed and blood put over the door, right? And what happened when blood was put over the door? The Lord passed by that house and the one who would come and take life, the destroyer, it says in Exodus twelve twenty three, the destroyer would pass over and not go into that home. And so it was by the blood of the Passover lamb that God's judgment was reserved for others and not for those who were under that blood. And it points us forward to see that these religious leaders and not wanting to defile themselves so they could eat the Passover meal actually defy themselves in the greatest way possible. And they, they miss partaking of the heavenly Passover meal. They miss partaking of what their earthly Passover pointed them to see. And so freedom from bondage comes through Christ. And in wanting to crucify him, they miss that he is the one who will deliver them ultimately from bondage. Bondage to what? Bondage to sin. You see, sin, sin creates bondage in our lives. Sin wraps us up. It's like a cancer that grows inside. And it creates death within. In fact, Scripture is clear that the wage of sin is death. The payment for sin, in other words, is death. Eternal life apart from God. Under the wrath of God. And so that leads us into scene 2 in verses 33 through 38. And in scene 2, we see Jesus' kingship and kingdom are different from the world. The scene begins with Pilate questioning Jesus. But it ends with Jesus questioning Pilate. Verse 33, Pilate says, Are you the king of the Jews? And in verse 34, Jesus seeks clarification, asking him, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And in other words, what Jesus is doing is he's really taking the conversation to a personal level with Pilate. 
And the question that we need to ask this morning as they interact and we read and kind of observe from outside in the text is, how is Jesus' kingdom different from the world? I mean, that's what we want to know as we read this text. That's what Pilate wants to know. As he's hearing the complaints and the charges that have been trumped up against Jesus, that's what, that's what everyone wants to know. How is Jesus' kingdom different from the world? And so he begins in verse 36 to speak of the nature of his kingdom. And so Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would be fighting for me to be delivered. But instead, know that my kingdom is not of this realm. In other words, Jesus is saying it's power. My kingdom's power and the benefits and, and it, its ways are foundationally different than those of the world. Jesus doesn't mean that his kingdom is inactive or has nothing to do with the world. No, in fact, his kingdom, it, it, it would be more correct to understand his kingdom as the umbrella under which the world exists. And so what we need to see is that the church, we see now that the church advances Christ's kingdom on earth by his Holy Spirit. I think it's telling when we watch um, children's movies. I think about uh, Journey Journey to the Mysterious Island, right? We always, always want to discover these places. I don't know if you've seen it. If you haven't, just hear me out for a minute. There's this, there's this continual theme. You can think about another, maybe Peter Pan. Uh, there's this continual theme in children's movies, right, to return to something which is, uh, which is perfect or which is pristine or to go to a place where the good guy always wins, the victor always conquers over evil. Our imaginations want to, to, to go there. We, we go to this make-believe place where all is right in the world or we see where artists create movies and Fictional heroes like Captain America or Superman or Spider-Man. We have these modern day heroes where vengeance is dealt out and the victor makes all things right. This represents our view of what a good kingdom in this world would be, doesn't it? I mean, this is kind of the, this is the cream of the crop of what we would uh, idolize or, or think about being a good kingdom in this world. And in our dreams, in our imaginations, we long for a place where all is at peace and all is well. I think the Christian, ultimately, deep down, we, we long for fallen creation to be restored. I think that's even the case in, uh, just, uh, in the, for the natural man, as we see that come across in themes in, in movies. We long for what Revelation 21, 1-7 speaks of. Listen to John's words in Revelation 21, 1-7. through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
And he said, write for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I think Revelation 21.7 gives us this picture of what God's kingdom will look like. As we consider what it what it what it's like now, I, I think we need to consider that the mission of Christ was to bring his kingdom to light through redemption of of the brokenness of creation. King Jesus has come to love the unlovable and to redeem the hopeless of creation. This is the mission of the church in the world to see redemption and the proclamation of the gospel go out through the entirety of the world. So how is Jesus' kingship different from the world? How is his kingdom different from the world? We see that. How is his kingship different from the world? Jesus speaks about the purpose of his mission in verse 37. In verse 37, he says, you say correctly, I'm a king. For this, I have been born. And for this, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. The truth that Jesus speaks of is the truth regarding his revelation of the father and of eternity. He's come to make truth known Jesus has been born into the world to reveal the truth about God. That was the point of his incarnation. He has come to reveal the truth to his creation about who God is. And Jesus speaks truth into the lives of his people. He did this through his earthly ministry, but he also does this now through the reading of his word, through the proclamation of his word, through the ministry of his church. So to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then, we must listen and follow his truth. Look at what he says at the end of verse 37. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Our lives must be lived in allegiance to this humble king who is on trial that we read about in the text this morning. You know what Jesus is also showing us? Jesus is also showing us that it's possible to know the world and still love the world. He knows the world, and he still loves the world. He desires to see redemption and restoration in creation. That is why he is headed to the cross. People long for restoration. We long for justice and and things to be made right. We want for wars to stop. And the rumors of war to stop. We long for the beheadings that we hear about to stop. We long for persecution to stop. People look for answers that offer contentment and purpose and direction in life. But here's the thing. John is quick to show us. It's not found in the religious institution. Nor is it found in the political institutions of the day. It's ultimately found in God's heavenly kingdom of which Christ is king. Of which Jesus in verse 37 invites Pilate and respectively you and me to come and to become citizens of this heavenly kingdom. 
Do you hear his voice? Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Do you hear his voice this morning? Has Jesus Christ called you to be part of his kingdom? Is he calling you even now to trust in him, to believe upon him as king and as suffering servant? The third scene moves in verse 38, the second part of verse 38 through 19, verse 7. Jesus' innocence is proclaimed. And as his innocence is being proclaimed, we specifically see this in verse 38, verse 4, and verse 6. Three different times, Pilate comes out of the praetorium where he's questioning Jesus and speaks to the Jews saying, I find no guilt in him. And John intends for us to see that Jesus was innocent. He was not guilty of the crimes being charged against him. So in verses 1 through 3, we see that he was beaten. The mocking and the torture that Jesus endured points us to see the picture of the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. Listen to what verse 7 says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Isaiah 53, 7. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is the innocent substitute who will die for man's sin. Think about it. It was man's sin that ultimately introduced thorns and thistles into God's good creation. And those thorns are now the thorns that we read about in verses 1 through 3 that crown the king of glory. The fallenness of creation is thrust upon Christ as he bears the payment with a a whip and and with with bones that are at the end of these, these leather straps, bones that have been crushed because of sin itself. And so he bears the torturous whip against his body and in so many ways Jesus bore the curse of sin and what I hope we see from this text is is that sin is ugly sin is hideous in the sight of God and the consequences of sin are worse the consequence of sin is death it's death because the holiness of God demands divine justice against sin and in verse 5 Pilate brings him out before the crowd and he says, behold the man. And as he says, behold the man, I think Jesus was there, standing there, displaying his glory. Though they mocked him with the earthly garments of a king, his true glory as the one and only begotten of the Father was was standing there and, and radiating through his earthly body. He was the abandoned and rejected and isolated king of creation. And he was standing in front of his creation, receiving their shame and feeling their disgrace and being brutalized to feel the pain that was due to each of them and that was due to each of us. Isaiah 56 speaks to this saying, I gave my back to those who strike me. 
and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. You see, in his innocence, Jesus took upon himself our sin. And John highlights for us the guilt of the Jews in this text. He shows us that those three times that that Pilate comes out to speak to the crowd, all three times they revolt and they reject and they cry out for Jesus' life. And then he also shows us that not only do, do they revolt, um, they, they chastise him because he made himself out to be the Son of God. They're rejecting Christ's rule. You know, they choose to release the guilty robber, Barabbas, over the innocent king, Jesus. They want Barabbas released instead of Jesus. And so John's careful to show us also the Gentiles and the guilt of the Gentiles in verses 1 through 3. These were the Roman soldiers who were beating Jesus, who were whipping him, who were scourging him. We even see Pilate. Pilate continued to refuse to act justly. We see in Pilate one who doesn't love justice, though he sits in the place of justice. He instead loves his own position, and he loves the accolades of men. And so John's careful to show us that all of humanity is implicated in rejecting God's King, the Messiah, Jesus. I wonder if anyone here this morning is rejecting the rule and the kingship of Jesus in your life. He made himself out to be the son of God. Is this any different than the sin of the nations today? They rejected Jesus as sovereign king. Today, nations, people reject Jesus as sovereign king. Here's Psalm Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the apostles, uh, the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We see in this text, God is certainly sovereign over the nations, but the nations have rejected King Jesus. They pervert justice and and desire for Jesus to be killed. It reveals that, that they weren't seeking truth. Instead, they were seeking their own way. The point we must see this morning is this. The way that a person responds to Jesus Christ, the King, determines how they will spend eternity. When we see Jesus the King and his kingdom, the way that we respond to his kingship and his kingdom will determine how we spend eternity. It is a serious matter. And Jesus speaks of the truth of his kingdom, saying that he has come to reveal truth to his people, the truth about God. As we move into scene four, we see Jesus' kingship is rejected. His kingship is rejected. In verses 8 through 16, 
In verses 8 through 11, we see that Jesus is intent on fulfilling the Father's eternal plan. We see it in verse 11. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus himself, he's, he's submitted to the Father's authority and rule by entrusting himself into his Father's hands. And in verse 12, tells us that Pilate makes an effort to release Jesus. But he ultimately fears man more than he fears God. Because when he, when he tells him, when he makes efforts to release him, they come back and say, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. But there's a twist. While everything points to Jesus being on trial... He has put them on trial. They come and they prepare. They're ready to prepare the Passover in verse 14. But in verse 13, it says Pilate sat down on the judgment seat, the place called the pavement. And he sits there ready to render a guilty verdict against an innocent man. In verses 14 through 16, when John points out the Passover, he points out the irony of the circumstance. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. And King Jesus, who is innocent, has been brought before the judgment seat, before the pavement. And the question as we're reading through, if we didn't know the end of the story, would be, Will the innocent Passover sacrifice, King Jesus, be condemned to death for the deliverance of God's people? That's what John wants us to ask as we look through the text. And the answer comes in the very next verse, verse 15. The Jews cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. You see, the answer for the high priest and the rest of the crowd that day was to reject Jesus and to crucify him. They rejected the truth of God that Jesus came to reveal. The answer for Pilate that day was to reject Jesus and allow him to be crucified. We see that in verse 16. So then he handed him over to be crucified. You know, Pilate could have set Jesus free. Pilate was too concerned with worldly concern, too concerned with the worldly opinion to stand for justice and to release Jesus. They chose to give allegiance to worldly kings over their heavenly king. The question we wrestle with this morning as we conclude this text is, will we give allegiance to worldly masters or to heavenly masters? Or to our heavenly master, rather, Jesus became the innocent Passover sacrifice. And in laying down his life, he's truly set men and women free from bondage. And all who believe in the truth of Christ are citizens of the heavenly kingdom that Jesus is speaking of. So what will be the answer for each of us today? Have we surrendered our allegiance to the heavenly king? Are, are you like the Jews, rejecting the truth of God that, that's been revealed to us in Scripture? 
and through the life and the work and the ministry of Christ? Are you like Pilate, more concerned about worldly perception than the truth of God? You see, this morning, I I hope we see that our, our reaction to King Jesus exposes our ultimate motivation and determines our ultimate destiny. Will we be like the Jews who shall crucify him? Or be like Pilate who doesn't have time to hear the case and just wants to dismiss it but doesn't take a stand because of the worldly opinion? I will, be, will we be like the one that he calls out in verse 37? I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who hears the truth hears my voice. And the truth is this, that Jesus Christ has come down, God in flesh, into the world to die for lost sinners that he might redeem sinners, to have a relationship with him, to know him intimately, and to be part of his kingdom eternally. I want to challenge you this morning to respond to King Jesus. Is he your king? Is your life being lived in allegiance to this king? I pray that it is. Let me pray and then invite you to respond to the Lord as he leads you this morning. Let us pray. Father, as we close our time together in your word this morning, I pray that you would take your word and that you would use it in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds to to draw near to you, to draw us near to you, to teach us how to celebrate the wonderful truth of the gospel and the hope of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring the suffering and the shame that should have been ours. And we pray, God, that you would give us strength to live faithfully in the allegiance to our King and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Passover Lamb who has delivered us from bondage to sin. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?